Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zaffert. There is much to say by way of introduction of my next guest, James E. Young. He is a distinguished university professor emeritus of English and Judaic and Near Eastern Studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He is also the founding director of the Institute for Holocaust, Genocide and Memory Studies. He has written many books on Holocaust memorials, memory and museums, including Writing and Rewriting the Holocaust and the Texture of Memory. He has also curated Holocaust exhibitions, served on the Design Selection Committee for the Berlin Holocaust Memorial, and was a member of the jury of New York City's September 11 Memorial Design Competition. He is also the recipient of numerous awards and fellowships. He is in Johannesburg this week as a guest of the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center, the Goethe Institute, and the Rosa Luchtenberg Foundation, where he gave an address in commemoration of Kristallnacht. Professor, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, you spoke last night at the Goethe Institute on the topic Stages of Memory, Reflection on Memorial Art, Loss, and Spaces Between. Um, it's 79 years since Kristallnacht. Of course. How do we remember things that we ourselves have no memory of? Well, that was actually the opening question for my uh, dissertation. Okay. Um, how to remember things that we didn't experience personally. And I began uh, working on Holocaust literature in the mid-70s and did much of my work in archival uh, centers uh, in Berlin, uh, Bonn, uh, eventually at Auschwitz and the Jewish Historical Institute in Warsaw, and of course uh, in Israel and in New York. And found that even as I was doing, you know, literary historical research on the diaries and memoirs of this time, um, I couldn't ignore the spaces in which I was reading these and examining these. And as a result, the, um, my, uh, my, my questions became two-pronged. I both wanted to understand uh, what happened at the time, who did what to whom, under what circumstances, what the responses were, the, you know, in real time and how these things were being passed down to us, um, passed down to us by the victims in their diaries, by survivors in their memoirs, um, by survivors in um, audio and visual testimony, and eventually um, by nation-states in their national museums and national uh, memorial calendars, and found that um, there was no one way to do it, and it depended completely on who was telling the story to whom and how they received it, and then maybe most important, what we did with that knowledge. And uh, that was a little bit of the crux of the talk last night. Right. So <clears throat> we, many stories about the Holocaust are only coming out now because for many reasons people didn't talk. Mm -hmm. Those that are talking now, how reliable are their stories? Um, I would say um, they're 100 they're 100% reliable in conveying how they understood the events as they unfolded around them. Um, as we know, as eyewitnesses in any kinds of events, I mean, even, even today, um, you know, there's a Rashomon effect. Um, five witnesses often lead to five different stories. But as a composite, um, you can arrive <clears throat> at a general consensus of what happened when and, and to whom. 
Um, but for a long time, historians tended to discount the survivor's voice a little bit as intrinsically unreliable because they were so close to events, they couldn't see the big picture. And, and that's true in a way. Um, Emil Falkenheim, uh, a great philosopher, uh, once said <clears throat> that he never, he d- didn't understand Sachsenhausen until 10 years later, even though he had been he interned there it, yeah. because he, he was so close. And the great um, uh, diarist, Heim Kaplan, in the Warsaw Ghetto understood that the events around him were being choreographed by the Nazis in order to deceive the inhabitants mm. of the ghetto. And so he said, how can I describe what I'm seeing um, when, I, when I know that these events are being created and orchestrated you know, in order to keep me in the dark? And so there, was, there is that fundamental difficulty. And so what gets passed down is not always the great names, dates, and places, which we can figure out, <clears throat> but how the victims and survivors either apprehended or misapprehended their circumstances at the time, mm-hmm. because those apprehensions and misapprehensions actually fed back into unfolding history. Right. How they understood a deportation one day affected how they responded to the deportation the next day. And and that's what matters most. Um, I, I'm not, we're not looking for pure reliability or authenticity. Mm-hmm. We want to know and understand how people's interpretation of events feeds back into events and how we interpret events now, which lead to further actions, interventions or non-interventions. Well, one of the <laughs> refrains that came out of the Holocaust, two refrains that come out of the Holocaust is, Forgive, but never forget. And the other one, never again. Um, I don't know if you want to talk to those in terms of the work that you do. Um, well, maybe about half survivors might say, uh, forgive, but never forget. Okay, the other half, uh, half the ones say. I know say, um, never forgive, never forget. Yes. Um, but as far as never again, uh, I'm all for it. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, w- I would like to see some uh, action. Um, and you know, we did talk about the way that uh, the Germans in particular have I- internalized memory of what they did one time under the Nazi regime uh, to, um, uh, to move them to intervene, you know, as they did in Kosovo with NATO, flying uh, with NATO warplanes you know, to bomb the Serbs. And that's crucial. Um, Art Spiegelman uh, told me one time that he wanted to make an exhibition at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum <clears throat> called Never Again and Again and Again and Again and Again and Again. <laughs> because, in fact, he, he didn't see anybody learning anything and taking away anything good or instructive here. He saw mostly broken and shattered lives. And um, uh, and that's, uh, that's part of the post-Holocaust reality, too. When putting together a Holocaust museum, there, there's so many different kinds of considerations. And um, somebody I know went to Yad Vashem in Jerusalem many, many years ago, and he went back later, and the exhibition had changed. And when he asked why... He was told that the original one was too offensive or too upsetting. Do we sanitize things in museums? And should we? Right. Uh, First, I don't think we should sanitize. Um, But I also don't think uh, the jobs of museums is to uh, devastate the visitors or numb them. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
yeah. you know, in some way. When I say offend, <laughs> not offend in terms of making mm-hmm. them just it, – it, it was so hard. I right. don't know if it was hair or something very real that it was upsetting. Well, I, I think uh, th- whomever he asked at the museum gave him a short answer. The longer answer is that um, museums need to evolve to reflect new generations and new generations' reasons for coming to the museum in the first place. Um, the original Yad Vashem was conceived <clears throat> very early, in fact, even conceived during the war. Um, that, that was when the very first idea you know, took hold. And it was reflecting very much um, the so-called Founding Fathers' uh, vision of uh, Israel, um, of the Galut, of the survivors who were pretty um, badly treated when they first got to Israel. Um, <clears throat> half the population, or nearly half the population of Israel in 1948 uh, were survivors and displaced persons. And uh, the, the Yad Vashem, um, when it opened, reflected that composition, you know, and that demo- uh, yeah, demography, if you will. Mm. And um, as it became more of an immigrant state, and more and more Russians you know, came, and more French came. Um, <clears throat> as uh, kind of positions evolved, um, there was clearly uh, room for change, and they needed to reflect kind of a, a more of an immigrant, you know, sensibility, understanding that national history of Israel, um, because it's an immigrant nation necessarily includes the histories and memories of its immigrants and the events that drove them to these shores. And for a long time, there was a little bit of this negation of the galut, negation of exile. Um, uh, let's concentrate on what we've made here and uh, just understand that um, they, you know, the galut is dead and you know, I'm Yisrael Chai here you know, in Israel. And um, and that that evolved <clears throat> over time, so that by the eighties, that was clearly kind of a ar- little bit of an archaic story, and so Yad Vashem was completely redone. redone. Also, because it was now you know, forced to compete with the U.S. Holocaust Memorial right. Museum and other you know huge uh, centers around the world, right. and they had to they had to be updated. Yeah. So you say museums need to evolve all the time to bring in the discussions that are taking place exactly. in, our, in our own society. Um, I look at South Africa today and I look at the Roads Must Fall movement mm-hmm. um, where the debates around the, ro- the the statue are more important, you would argue, I think, mm-hmm. than the statues themselves. What do you do with statues and what is it? I, I don't know if you'd like to comment on that, but sure. also how we interpret our history and can we hide our history? Because that was a part of the debate, mm-hmm. you know. Roads existed. Sure. Whether the statue exists or not, it doesn't matter. Exactly. And I'd, I'd, I'd like you to comment on that. Well, um, we have a parallel issue in the states now with the Confederate uh, monuments, and uh, uh, it's understandable that uh, people would want to take a hard line and blow these things up. You know, I, I, my my instinct is to do the same thing: <laughs> blow them up and just leave them. Leave the them in a pile of rubble, yeah, and that's the best monument to roads now. Yeah, but in fact, um, I would like to see a slow motion um, transition. Let's see the monument as a transitional object over time. It no longer makes sense in our context. We can no longer glorify this this figure, this historical figure. But there's plenty of room on the plinth that I saw in Cape Town, anyway, 
uh, for a signage that would make very clear who this man was in his time, what he believed, um, what uh, what the effects of his uh, of his reign were in that way, and why uh, he and his memory can be so offensive today, and raise the question as to where does this go? Is this can he and the space around him now be a place for us to recontextualize the this, the statue and suggest that um, you know for the next year let's let's create these debates you know in the company of Cecil Rhodes and then uh, gently move his statue into a museum but leave the plinth there mm. now empty with yeah. an explanation as to where Rhodes has gone when you talk about the debate, I mean, I think it's an absolutely brilliant idea, mm-hmm. and I think you should be, you know, meeting with the powers that be <laughs> to, to, to. But a university would be an ideal place for the, these kinds sure. of discussions mm-hmm. to take place. Um, who facilitates this kind of debate? Because there's so much anger at the moment in this country. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of this comes from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that. Uh, I'm not sure who, you know, kind of the the NGO powers that be are here to do that. Uh, I would love to see um, institutes or related organizations, um, maybe museums um, of Holocaust and genocide. They might be designated as appropriate safe places mm-hmm. where these debates could be held or a university institute might. Or maybe even a, a, a government ministry, if there's a ministry of culture. That would you know designate a process, but it needs to be very systematic. Mm. And if it's very systematic with a very uh, clearly uh, defined rationale, um, it opens the space up without prescribing where it's going mm. to go. Maybe it won't go there. Maybe um, over time uh, there'll be a consensus toward actually uh, you know taking it apart and you know spreading it around the country or something. But open the space up where the debate takes place. Uh, toward the you know toward the disposition of the statue. Uh, what you spoke about last night in terms of monuments that have been erected to um, commemorate events, and you moved from different cities, mm-hmm. uh, Holocaust museums, and then specifically to nine eleven. Um, the process is, as I said, more important, and then the actual outcome and the outcome itself is, in a way, irrelevant. Right. You also spoke when you were referring to 9-11, because it's such also a recent history, about the different hierarchies of, um, what was the word you used, um, suffering? Yeah, hierarchies of victims. Hierarchies of victims. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a pertinent discussion around issues of colonialism, apartheid, Mm -hmm. and the Holocaust. And I think there's almost... It sounds a terrible thing to say, but Holocaust envy or uh, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you'd like to comment on that. Um, every every genocide is uh, unique to itself. Um, but once we begin talking about them in kind of a continuum and thinking of this long durée of genocides, whether from the Armenian genocide forward all the way to the Rwanda genocide, Cambodian, I mean... You know, where to begin, where to end. Um, but I think we need to think of these as not a zero-sum project, um, but as a, a comparativist. And not, not comparativist in, in the ways that this was bigger or smaller mm-hmm. or 
more damaging. <clears throat> Um, but but to understand the mechanics um, under what circumstances you know does genocide have kind of a fertile ground <clears throat> um, when interventions work how did they work and why did they work and why were there not interventions mm. when there were no interventions and these kinds of questions um, are, arise in the context of of all of these so in the specific area of um, hierarchies of victims this arose in the case of the Denkmal in Berlin um, because. Uh, many people said, yes, it's, it's true. Uh, the Jews were the target of a, a, a racial, ethnic you know, extermination you know, program by the Nazis, as were Sinti and Roma. Um, and, and the methods used uh, began uh, with the methods used to kill the disabled, um, mm. and disabled Germans, mm. um, hundreds of thousands, you know, even before you know, the Jews were uh, attacked. And <clears throat> so... How do you locate these in relationship to each other? And and the Germans were worried that a memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe might somehow preclude these other memorials. And my job was to reassure them that, no, it will make sure that these other memorials are built. Mm-hmm. They have to be built. You know, and the order in which they're built won't matter in 10 years when they're all there. Mm-hmm. Start. Start now, and I guarantee you that the memorials to the victims of the T4 program, you know, the euthanasia program, and the Sinti and Roma victims, uh, and um, uh, uh, gay, lesbian victims, will all be remembered. But you have to give, give, give it the space and time. You know, it needs. And sure enough, it did turn out that way. So you, you can walk for 12 minutes now in Berlin, you know, from the Denk Mall to Homo Monument to the T- to the Sinti Roma Monument to the T4 Monument. And there's a, an amazing matrix of memory there from World War II. It's been absolutely fascinating. I have a lot more questions I'd like to <laughs> ask you, but very little time. I know you're off to Durban. Mm-hmm. Um, possibly you've seen the, the two Holocaust centers in our country, and you'll see the third one soon. How do they compare to... The issues dealt with here compared to other ones. Uh, I, I think the, the Holocaust centers here um, situate themselves amazingly well within their African context mm-hmm. and South African context. Um, <clears throat> uh, surely they need to be Holocaust uh, genocide you mm-hmm. know, institutions, which they are or be, are mm-hmm. now are becoming. Um, they relate uh, beautifully to the groups of visitors coming in. And yes, I mean, isn't the purpose of all culture and literature and art to convey experiences that were somebody else's? Right. That that's 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 what we do and and why we live. Uh, and so, if groups of um, <clears throat> uh, African school kids, South African school kids, come in and they learn about the Holocaust, so too will groups of um, you know, Jewish school kids and come in and learn about the Rwandan genocide and and uh, colonial um, abuses you know, before their time. Um, Enjoy Durban, and again, thank you so much for making the time to come in. Thanks for having me.